Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Brian Lubers and Dr. Bob Larson. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Brad. Happy to have you guys with us and happy to have you with us as well. As we've got several good things to talk about today. The first thing I want to bring up is as we're thinking about taking those some of those pictures, we've been getting some pictures from you and we enjoy seeing the pictures of the cattle that you send in. And we do have a little contest going where we're going to share the results of some of that those pictures and our top ones are going to get a prize. So you can send us, if you have a picture of your operation or cattle on your place, you can send us that picture by September 3rd. And then soon after that, we'll talk about the results of our contest. Also wanted to mention a few weeks ago, and, and we talked about recently choice versus select. And a few weeks ago, we actually put out a survey that, that asked our listeners. And we said, do you think that we're going to continue improving in the percent choice that we have graded. And what our listeners said, about 60% of them said that it was gonna continue improving and about 40% said that it was gonna plateau. So it'll be interesting to, to watch and, and continue to watch that as we go through. We've got a, a couple good listener questions today as well as we're gonna address a, a topic, should you, should you let cattle in the pond or should you fence them out? As well as our listener questions are related to shrinkage or weight loss between journeying from one place to another and the effects of weaning on the dam. What does that do to the, the mature cow? And of course, we're going to follow up on our topic that we talked about last week. That was how do you, how to best invest in your herd and how to decide where to invest if you want to reinvest. Before we get to those topics, Bob, I know you uh, were doing some preparation for class this week and kind of stumbled across a pretty interesting story, which I think is relevant to our listeners. You bet. I think maybe maybe people have heard uh, people talking about vaccinations in the recent uh, past. And uh, it, it made me, uh, as I was, again, preparing for, for class, do you know where the word vaccination comes from, where that, the, the source of that word you mean the root, the root yeah, word? Yeah, the, the, the root word. I, I mean, you know, there's always a reason that a word comes from somewhere. Well, I'm going to guess because right. it's medical. I'm going to guess Latin. Yep, it's Latin. And if you start thinking about your Latin classes, which maybe you had Latin or not. <laughs> I did not. All right. So here, probably Dr. Lubers knows this. So what's the Latin word for cow? Uh I actually, I know the Spanish, but I don't, what's, it's, pro it's probably it's, similar. So vodka. Vaca. Yeah. The vaca. Vaca is the Spanish and Latin word for cow. And that's where our word vaccination comes from is. So anytime anyone wants to talk about vaccination, you can just go, well, you know, you're talking about cows. And, and the source and the reason why cow is in the root word for vaccination is because really the first vaccination that we had was uh, Jenner. Uh, Edward Jenner came up with the cowpox vaccination to prevent smallpox. So cowpox is a minor, mild disease that will protect people against the much more serious smallpox disease. So he kind of developed this very first vaccination where he would take smallpox or uh, cowpox lesions and, and vaccinate people with it to prevent smallpox. Therefore, he called it a vaccination, a cow good thing. So cow vaccination so that's so when anybody talks about vaccinations they are talking about cows so as we as we jump in to some of our other topics here speaking of jumping in it's that time of year when we get to august and the pastures are dry and the everything is hot um 
the cows will sometimes jump in the pond. <laughs> and I wanted to get you guys' opinion because I've heard different takes on this as far as uh, you should fence them out of the pond or you should not fence them out of the pond and let them have a place to go cool off. And you drive around and I see some of both. And yeah. I wanted to get you guys' opinions. Pond, when I'm thinking about pond management and cattle management, should I fence the cows out or can I let them in? I'd be interested to see or to hear what both you and Dr. Lubers have to say. I I guess my preference would be to fence them out um, because, um, you know, it basically it's, it makes the pond, in my opinion, I'm not a pond expert. I don't run a bulldozer or something, but but you, you think about uh, some erosion around the banks. Uh, you, you worry about increased risk of foot rot you know, being in mud and that kind of thing. So I think there's there's some uh, reasons to fence them out from a water quality standpoint, from a keeping them out of the mud and those types of things. It's, although, you know, I had clients, we had lots and lots of cattle that spend time in the ponds and I, I didn't see a noticeable increase in disease problems. Um, so I, I, I guess my preference would be, but I don't know how important it is. I, and maybe somebody else with more knowledge would think it's more important than I do. Brian? Yeah, I, I you know, we, we kind of talk about the health issues related to, to cows being in ponds and, and to be quite honest, I mean, I think my, my experience with that comes from dairy cows um, in cooling ponds. Um, but I think, I think the difference there is um, a, there's some physiologic differences and, and really in relation to increases in mastitis rates. I think there's some physiologic differences in teat confirmation and things like that between a dairy cow and a beef cow. And, and I think the other issue is how much time they spend in the pond. So, you know, we talk about probably for us when we think of cows in a pond, you know, it's kind of the occasional dip to stay cool or whatever, but, and these are, these are cows that are spending a lot of time, in the water because it's hot and humid. So I, I, there are some differences there. I, for me, in my experience, um, I, I think it's a pretty it's a pretty low risk, and and fencing the pond off is probably fairly low on my list of priority recommendations. I, th I think I, as you as you talk about ponds too, and I'll, I'll say different parts of the country, even mm -hmm. within a part of the country. A pond is not a pond. It's not a standard size. It's not a standard depth. It's not a yeah. standard anything, right? And and it could be fed from a from a creek, which is different, where you've got a freshwater pond, or it could be an area that was dammed off to catch runoff, and it's only going to be full when it rains enough for it to be full. And and I think it's a, a little bit apples and oranges as you think about some of those. You may want to be more protective of the water quality supply. Also depends how many sources of water you have for the for the cattle. And I, I did want to follow up, Bob, on your comment. Um, I think the the shoreline side and them kind of breaking down areas and causing erosion can be a real issue. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've seen done and I've actually done is, if you have a spot on your pond like that, you can put. You don't have to fence the entire pond to protect some of that shoreline. So it's. It, it may be a case where part of the shoreline is going to be a lot more susceptible to erosion. Well, fence that part off and then they, they won't stand there and then let them get in the other part of the pond. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that I, I think it, it really does depend and probably keep an eye on that water quality. 
Um, because, you know, from the health issues, we're talking about, you know, protecting the cows from mastitis, protecting them from, you know, drinking uh, water that's really fouled and, and nasty. Um, but so kind of look at your pond and your situation. And I think fencing off the pond is an option for some people. I'm kind of agreeing with Dr. Luber. It's probably not the most important thing from an animal health standpoint, but if I'm having problems, then, then I'm going to take action. And this, and this fits right into our next topic where we talked about where would we put an investment in our herd? And last week, we threw out some ideas and said, okay, the scenario is you, you want to reinvest in your herd. Where would you put that reinvestment? And we talked about things like I could, I could improve my genetics, potentially buying an expensive bull. I could save more heifers, purchase equipment. We talked about purchasing land, doing water or fence development. And, and Dustin mentioned maybe I want to invest in my herd by investing outside my herd, maybe diversify myself a little bit. And we threw out ideas last week, but this week I want to know where you guys would invest. So if you had money to invest back in your cow calf herd, where would you put it? Yeah. I, I said last week, I would probably start with some water and fence development. My, and my thought there is basically get more productivity from the grassland. Basically I'm trying to get more grazing days, more animal grazing days, from my land investment and like anything, you know, it, it, it does depend in that if, if that's my biggest um, area of potential improvement, then I think that's where I should invest. And I got to thinking more later about, you know, ways that I could be wrong. And so I, I would go back to where do I think I have the greatest upside potential? So maybe it's my genetics, maybe that I'm really, my cows are not particularly productive. And so the next dollar I spent on genetics would be highly, highly uh, an improvement. Whereas if I'm already pretty good, it, it, it's, it's hard to get that. <laughs> I, I'm going to use a term I learned in ag econ was declining marginal utility or declining return. So that the first dollar I spent, so my biggest problem is where I can have the biggest bang for my buck. An area that I'm doing pretty well on, uh, the next dollar I spend, I'm only going to get uh, so, you know, not as much return. So pick wherever. So is it is it my grazing days per cow or per acre? Uh, is that where I really have some potential? And then I should invest there. If it's my genetics and my herd, I should invest there. But that, but then the reality is, so how, how do I know which of those is my biggest problem? I think that's the hard part. Absolutely. And I think you got to figure that out. And you mentioned the return on your investment. And part, part of that thought process is also thinking about what's the timeline for that return, right? Am I expecting a return this year? Or am I expecting a return in, in 10 years? Brian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I, it's a great question because any answer I give is right and any answer I give is not right. So I, you know, it depends. It really does depend on the situation. And, you know, you mentioned timeline. So, uh, you know, I could, uh, I think for me, you know, investing in land is a relatively safe investment, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure that over time that will go up, but if my timeline is next year, that may not be right. That may not be the right answer. And um, I'll, I'll like you said, I think all, all the things we've talked about in, in the right situation are the correct answers, but I'll even throw out maybe a different perspective. We, we mentioned a little bit last week and I think kind of talking amongst, amongst us during the week, just to kind of figure out how we would approach this is I think what initially we were all kind of against the depreciating 
asset approach, right? We, we said, you know, okay, maybe we can't say what the right investment is, but maybe here are some clear, not right investments. And, you know, I got to thinking about that and we talked, I think we mentioned maybe facilities, right? So, so building nice new facilities um, probably doesn't provide you a monetary return on investment, but, you know, just from a personal perspective, if that, if that makes your operation more efficient and safer, maybe that is the right place to put some money in. And you're not probably going to see dollars back out of that. Um, but, I, but I think maybe if you have a long-term goal to have, you know, it's sustainability of your operation for a long period of time, or, you know, maybe you're an older producer and you just can't do the things you used to be able to do and some facilities would make your job easier maybe that is the right approach. So again, I'll go back to, I think whatever I answer is right and whatever I answer is wrong. And, and it really is kind of look at what you, what your situation is, what you're trying to do, both short and long-term, and then what your goal is. Is it truly a dollar's back in my pocket or is it something else that, that makes sense in your operation? That's a great point, Brian. And I, and I think, there, you brought up the depreciation, and we talked a little bit about that with the example of whether it's a tractor or swather or baler or something that, that you're going to get. It's it's going to be driven by the cost of that equipment, how many times you use it, and then how long you'll own it. And and that's what drives, and we said maybe that maybe that is at least something that needs to be calculated. The other thing that you mentioned is thinking about thinking through the costs and potential income and not all of that income may necessarily be dollars. So if I redid my facilities, I may have some, some costs that are easy to calculate and some income savings, be it labor or safety, that's a little bit harder to calculate the, calculate the dollars. I want to circle back to the genetics and think mm -hmm. a little bit about the genetic side there. And if I was going to invest, and Bob, you said, if it, say maybe this is an area of need on my ranch or operation, yep. and I'm going to go out and I'm going to invest in a, a new bull that has really good genetics and is really costly. Anything to think about in that specific scenario? Well, I'll, I'll go with it. When you say a bull with really good genetics, typically what that means is that he's got really good growth genetics, meaning he, his offspring uh, grow pretty efficiently. You know, so they have a good average daily gain and good feed efficiency, both while they're uh, grazing and in the feedlot. So that would be what, and, and then oftentimes hang up a good carcass. Um, so that's what I would call a good bull, all right? And so then using those definitions, it becomes really important if I spend more money for that bull uh, versus a bull that maybe doesn't have as high a, a growth potential and carcass potential in his offspring, well, I need, I need to own those calves long enough to, to make that really uh, beneficial to me. So if, if I spend more money for a bull, that calves are going to grow better and put up a better carcass on the rail, um, I, I don't want to just sell those calves at weaning um, because it, it's hard to merchandise them or market them in a way so that the buyer really knows, well, yes, you, you're getting a great deal. You're, they, they basically have to take my word for it that, yeah, I've, I've purchased this bull. I've got better genetics. He's gonna, their calves are going to perform great for you. But if I own those calves on through a stalker phase or all the way through to finish, um, then I benefit from that increased genetic cost 
and then I'm getting the benefit from that. And so I think one of the things to consider is what's your marketing plan for those calves? Because uh, when I say better genetics bulls, basically I'm saying their calves are more efficient at putting a high quality carcass on the rail for consumers. Um, and the longer I own those calves into their lifetime, the more I can benefit from that. So if I'm gonna sell at weaning, uh, I'm, I may not have the time those calves may not have the time to benefit from uh, that extra cost, the extra breeding cost. So Does that make any sense? I don't know if I made sense there or not. Yeah, no, I, I think it makes sense. And I, I agree with your point, but I think back to the earlier point about the it depends is, you know, we're talking about reinvesting dollars back in a herd and, you know, buying a bull isn't the only way to improve our genetics and maybe, spending dollars on a liquid nitrogen tank and and some artificial insemination or a change in our reproductive program is a better fit now is that going to work in every single herd no if you don't have the expertise and the facilities and and really the time time reproductive programs are a lot about time but you know that's an alternative to the same it's an alternative approach to the same end goal which is improving the genetics in our herd um, but it doesn't, you know, maybe a better bull is a good fit for one herd, but, you know, AI technology and some facilities and equipment to go along with that is a better approach for a different herd. So yeah. I'm going to go back to, it depends. And I, and I think that's, that highlights kind of the, the take home from this is you, you don't invest blindly and you want to kind of calculate, come up with a plan. And the other thing is you, you might talk to somebody, if you identify, and we've just talked about genetics, you identify that's the area I need to improve is genetics. Go talk to some experts in that area. And you may get somebody like Brian that says, hey, don't, don't just think about the bull, but think about using AI or think about some of these alternatives that may not have occurred. So I think that's really good uh, advice as we talk about how to invest in your herd. And that leads us to our cattle chat checklist for this week. Our BCI cattle chat checklist this week are the top items to consider when making a new investment back in your operation. Number six, get some opinions from others with expertise in the area that you are investigating. Number five, calculate all the potential uses and the depreciation costs. Number four, consider all potential costs and income associated with this investment. Number three, decide how long cattle will be owned. Are you gonna own the calves through weaning or all the way through finishing? Number two, determine a timeline for getting a return on this investment. And number one, create a budget. And that's our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist for this week. All right, guys, we've got a couple good listener questions, and I, and I love getting those listener questions. You can always send us one at bci at ksu.edu because we really enjoy talking about them and talking about things that are relevant to you. So our first one is a question, and, and the question is talking about shrinkage in feedlot cattle, and it was based on how do we reduce shrinkage when shipping our steers. I'm not sure specifically if this is talking about shipping steers from the cow-calf operation to the feedlot or shipping steers from the feedlot to the packing facility. So I want you guys to address both. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out with a little bit of background on shrinkage itself. When we say the word shrinkage, we're talking about the weight loss that occurs between the time 
a calf or cattle left one operation to the time they get to the next operation. Many times that would be what we would call, uh, you might weigh them between operations or a pay weight shrinkage based on what you pay on the cattle. And that shrinkage is essentially anytime we load cattle, we know one of the first things they do is defecate and urinate. And so they're gonna lose some water weight when they travel almost any distance. Uh, but the one that we get concerned about is when it gets into tissue shrinkage where you've actually had potentially some dehydration or with a really long journey, uh, start using some of that protein from the muscle. So I want to get you guys' opinions. And let's start with the scenario from cow-calf. Let's go from cow-calf to feedlot or cow-calf to sale barn. Uh, very similar topics. What do I do to prevent shrinkage? Well, it, 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 it depends on the situation we're talking about. But basically, it's to try to keep the gut fill um, pretty close to the way it was and to make sure you don't have any of that kind of tissue loss. So that generally means um, make sure that the animals uh, have, have eaten recently. That So I, I want them to kind of fill up on uh, some, some forage or something that's going to stick with them for a while for the, sh for the trip, that they've had opportunity for water so that they don't become dehydrated. Um, and then I try to minimize the amount of time that they are away from feed and water. So, I mean, while they're on the truck, they're going to be away from feed and water. But I want to make sure that they've had the opportunity to eat and drink relatively soon uh, compared to when I load them up on the truck. So I don't want them to be fasted for 24 hours and then load them up on the truck for a several-hour drive. I, I want to keep that fasting period uh, down to a fairly low number. Yeah, I'm, and and I think, and I guess my answer actually applies to, well, I have two answers. One applies to both situations, and that's that's the handling. Um, you know, when we're whenever we're handling calves, loading calves up, uh, we want to we want to make this a, a stress fee, stress free, uh, low mo. You know, we've got to get them on the truck. I understand that, but there's no need to exercise them. Um, if you if you're trying to cut your shrink, don't try to exercise them. Let them walk at their pace nice gentle handling um, that'll help with your shrink specifically from the cow calf uh, to the feedlot operation. And it's in line with what Bob said about making sure they have access to food. Um, if you're weaning calves on the truck or shortly before transport, whether it's because you didn't give them access to, well, you didn't give them access to food, which was mom's milk. If you've weaned them shortly before transport, you'll probably experience a little more shrink too. So wean them well before that transport um, and, and that'll help cut your shrink a little bit too. Brian, I want to follow up on your point because I, I don't think it could be overemphasized the handling aspect because we just talked about what causes shrink, which is defecation and urination. What do cattle do when they get excited or we chase them around the pen or we do something to get them a little bit stressed out, defecation and urination. And that is that is one of the things I talked to a buyer one time that was looking at and we were talking about what impacts his price. And he says he likes to look at the loadout facilities because he, he can guess whether or not they're going to be if they and depending on how they work cattle. If it's not a low stress, easy handling facility, uh, they're going to have more shrink when they come out. The issue with shrink is then you then you can put it back on it, very quickly if it's just water loss. So it's not actual weight loss. 
What about shipping from the from the feed yard to the packing facility? Any thoughts there, guys? It's really kind of similar in that I want to try to load my cattle quietly, like Dr. Luber said, um, and not have them sitting on the truck any longer than they have to. So basically, again, so that's good communication between the feedlot and the packing plant. Some of that's, of course, out of our control. Uh, but but do the best that we can on our end to uh, have them spend as little time kind of in the in the truck and, and sitting in a, in a pen once they get to the feedlot too. So it's really about knowing uh, the, the scheduled time for kill and things like that. Um, and, and again, you know, managing how long they're fasted before they get on the truck and, and trying to, again, kind of minimize some of that loss. Yeah, I, I don't, I guess I don't have much to add. And I guess the one other kind of take home from this is, you know, make, make sure you under, you have realistic goals for shrinking. I mean, some shrinkage is going to happen. Zero is not possible. And so uh, just know you're, you're always going to deal with that. I, I think most people would probably put three to 4% mm -hmm. in as a normal shrinkage. And that, and that's just, if you're down in that range, that's probably about what you should expect. Now, if you're, if you're consistently higher than that, then you probably have some things you can look at and, and make some improvements in. Yeah. And, and we did study on, on shrinkage before, and most of the shrinkage, it, it is, there is a dependency on mileage. If I ship them further, they're going to have a little bit more shrinkage, but actually a big chunk of the shrinkage occurs in the first 30 to 40 miles because th yeah. that's, you loaded them up and you've gone and then, and then you don't have a, a lot more increase until you go significantly further. Yeah. But I, I do think from talking to uh, cow-calf operations, and, and I've seen the scenario too, and I've been tempted myself because you say the sale's on a Wednesday, I, I want to get them up in the pen. I don't want to get them up on Wednesday, so I want to get them up on, on Tuesday. But what if I don't get them up? So maybe I give myself a day extra and I get them up on Monday, and now they're in a strange environment for two days. You, you'll have more shrinkage in those scenarios, but there's trade-offs, right? So you have to think through what makes sense for for your operation but i thought that was a I thought that was a great question certainly appreciate that being sent in and we had we had another good one and, and this question was on now on the cow calf side and it was what's the what's the effect of weaning on the dam or the cow so when we think about her reproductive health her overall health when we wean a calf on a beef operation what's the impact on the mother most It'd be interesting to know exactly what the listener was asking about, because mostly it's positive from a standpoint of by the time we wean a calf, the cow is pregnant again with her next pregnancy. And um, by weaning that calf, basically we've reduced some of the energy requirements, energy and protein requirements for that cow. So it's easier for the available forage to meet all of her demands. So typically she'll put on a little bit of weight or at least maintain weight and not lose as much weight as she would have if she was still uh, having a, a calf at side. Now, a couple of things, and, and Brian, Dr. Lubers has a lot more experience on the dairy side. And there's also some udder health issues with allowing that udder to have some rest between lactations. I don't think it's nearly as big a deal in most beef cows, just because of the volume of, of milk that they have. Uh, a lot of beef cows aren't producing much milk by the time we wean their calf. If we actually measured the amount of milk a beef cow is making you know, late when that calf is 500 pounds, 
is not very much. And they've got uh, four or five months of utter rest, usually, yeah, right? Yeah, Before the next calf, next calf comes. And so, so, but well, I'm going to say at the extreme is, I guess I still wouldn't want to just you know, have, have a cow that's still suckling last year's calf as she's having her new calf. I think there's some negatives to that, but that, that would be at the very far extreme. But she's going to have a period of time where she's not lactating, whether that's a long time or a short time. Uh, and, and a short time is still on a beef cow going to be several months. Yeah. So taking from short several months to more months probably doesn't matter that much to her other health, uh, but it does allow her to get body condition on back a little bit quicker. And, and so mostly positive things associated with uh, weaning that calf, but not, I mean, but cows are made to have a calf next to them. So it's not, the, it's the health. I'm not saying that that calf is a health or production drain on that cow to a great extent. Um, it, it does allow her to kind of bounce back and get some body condition on before her next calving. Yeah, I, I agree, Brad. And I, I think, you know, the, the overall health impacts are, are, I mean, it's part of the normal physiology, right? That's, that's what we, we have a calf, we wean a calf, we have another calf. That's kind of how it works. I, you know, I, I feel almost a little bit like, is this question asking a bunch of us to comment on the cessation of lactation, right? And so Bob mentioned, you know, the dairy side. Um, sometimes those first few days after, after basically we start to dry off cows, those cows can act a little bit uncomfortable. So I, I want to, you know, I do want to recognize that, you know, there, there are, there is some, it is a physiologic change, right? And so, so there are things are that are happening. Um, again, I think on the beef side, it's, it's a little bit different where the, you know, the amount of milk we're producing and things like that are, are different, but I, I do want to, I do want to recognize that from that perspective, you know, that is a physiologic change, but, you know, in general, we don't typically look at that, look at that as a period of, of higher risk than, than other parts of the normal reproductive cycle. But you guys are talking about the difference beef and dairy because lactation does not go on indefinitely. Right. If we if we looked, if we had no human intervention, lactation would stop. The, yes. the difference being in, in these cases, uh, we picked a day and said, this is this is when the calves are getting weaned. If we didn't do that, eventually lactation would stop. And I'd argue on some of our beef breeds and with a long period of time before weaning, uh, some of them have already stopped <laughs> or mostly stopped. Right. They're already on that slope. Whereas in your dairy cows, they may not have stopped and they're going to try to produce as much milk today as they did yesterday. Whereas on your beef cows, producing as much as yesterday, if you're seven, eight months in, in a low milking breed, uh, may not be very much. <laughs> so it may not be, may not be a noticeable effect, uh, but certainly does change the nutritional profile of what's needed for those cows and certainly for the calves. So something to keep an eye on as you come up to this time of year. So appreciate your appreciate your input, and as always, we appreciate you tuning in, listening, and feel free to send us one of your pictures from your operation before our contest on September 3rd. You can also send us a listener question or a topic or something you'd like us to talk about at bci at ksu.edu. 